what a strange and wondrous time it is to be a Christian. I think if we were to put ourselves, all of us, back into just a few months ago, January, and imagine what you were doing or where you were at or who you were with at that time, who among us could have guessed just a few short months back that now here in July, the entire world essentially would experience something so universal and so impactful that it would affect all people of virtually every nation under the sun. Now, especially living in the United States, a prosperous nation founded on the principles of liberty and equal dignity, we just recognized the uh, 4th of July yesterday, I believe that we've become accustomed in this environment to certain things never changing, or at least almost never changing. And yet here we are, right? And we cannot help but feel the difference that COVID-19 has made in our lives, even in our ability to hold services and in the structure that those services will have. And the thought occurred to me just yesterday, because I'm always revising um, my notes and what I'm going to say for the sermon, even up until the last minute. You know, it seems like God's always saying something to me, like you've got to make sure you don't leave this out, or, or even sometimes you better take that thing out before you say that to people. So uh, either way, God's always speaking to me, and it was just yesterday that this thought popped into my head that if our concern for our physical and our social well-being could produce such an intense response, and we, should, we rightly should be concerned for these things, but if it could produce such an intense response, how much more so should our concern for our spiritual health? You know, Paul notes that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and for the life to come. And it struck me that this circumstance in which we find ourselves it really presents a grand opportunity to show what difference a Christian approach to life makes. History has shown time and time again that authentic Christianity never shies away from a time of trial. In fact, authentically, the church has always done quite well in times of trial. And how wonderful could it be that coming out of the era of COVID-19 and all the social unrest we're beginning to witness around us as well, to discover for ourselves that in the process of coming to terms with the challenges that we face, people in our lives, our neighbors, our friends, maybe even our, our family members, to discover that they came to see the church not as a joke, not as a waste of time, not as a quaint hobby people do on a Sunday because they have nothing better to do, but as the doorway, as, as the vessel for the key that leads to life. You know, I, I just think we're so conditioned by the ways of this world to treat the physical as being more real than the immaterial. But as C.S. Lewis so well remarked, we should imagine the spiritual, if anything, as heavier, as denser, as more solid than matter. And it is my hope that those who are afflicted in any way by the coronavirus would come to know that there is a deeper affliction with which every human struggles and that there is more at stake in that struggle. Well worth it 
to seek the cure to that disease. May all of us as Christians be able to pray with the missionary Jim Elliott, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. So with that in mind, I felt compelled to preach today on the inheritance of every Christian. This is the inheritance of every Christian. It doesn't matter how new a Christian you are, how young a Christian you are, how old a Christian you are, how educated a Christian you are, whatever your background is. This is the inheritance of every single Christian, without exception, the deep, mysterious destiny we all have of transformation in God. Now, unfortunately, though, it's, this isn't something we always talk about as Christians. In fact, we tend to stop far short of this glorious gift. Perhaps of us, too, was the author of Hebrews speaking when he wrote, About these things we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know, if you're like me at all, um, you probably want to exempt yourself from that category. Think, yeah, you know, those, those other Christians, those, you know, those other immature Christians that uh, need to do a lot of work, you know, they, yeah, good to call them out, Hebrews, you know. Um, but uh, I find that more than likely, uh, this is as applicable to myself as it is to anybody else, and especially so when we consider what those so-called basic principles that Hebrews refers to here actually are, because it goes on to specify just in the following verses, what are these basic principles that we need to, that are true and good, but that we need to advance beyond into maturity. The verse goes on to say, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about baptism the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So in other words, if you've only gotten so far as repenting of your sins, faith in God, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit, and accepting that there will be a resurrection and a judgment, which are, by the way, all true things, all things you need to know, but if that's all, as far as you got and you stop there, you remain in spiritual infancy. And please, do know there's, there's nothing wrong with going through this phase. Everything about this is true. But what is wrong is to remain in that immaturity willingly. Too often, we end at the beginning. We do this when we focus on one part of faith, such as the forgiveness of sins, and then we make that the major emphasis of our spiritual walk. But if all that God is to you is the one who gives you peace, or who saves you from judgment, 
or who helps you in times of need, or any other combination of partial truths, again, not false, but partial truths, then your growth in Him will be impaired. See, I feel, therefore, that it's really crucially important that we understand the fullness of what we are meant for in this life and to settle for nothing short of that. We don't have the time to waste. Because truly, in the words of the letter to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians, what we have received is a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Think of that, how wonderful a time it is to be living now as the church. The thing that all the prophets and all the patriarchs and all the figures in the Old Testament yearned for and craved for and prayed for and only caught dim, fleeting glimpses of. That's the thing that we, we live in the, as revealed. It's, that mystery has been revealed. It was hidden for ages and generations, and here we have it. So let's not throw it away. And what is that mystery? The riches of this mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it. Not simply Christ for you, and not even Christ with you, but in you. Now, what does that kind of life look like? I've chosen in this sermon to represent this upward ascent into the glory of these immeasurable riches by three categories. Information, reformation, and transformation. Information, reformation, and transformation. And what's neat is that this framework actually maps loosely onto a pattern that was developed by our brothers and sisters in the Eastern Orthodox churches as well. And we'll look into that as it relates to each, each section because I think it will add to our understanding. So firstly, the Christian life must become informed by the revelation of the gospel. You must become informed by the revelation of the gospel. True worship of God does not occur in a mental vacuum. And while the proper orientation of the heart is necessary, one's feelings, one's experiences, require a context of truth in order to be meaningful. Your feelings, your experiences, they don't mean anything outside of a context. And unless they're situated in the context of the truth of God, then you'll never find what the purpose of those feelings are, what they're driving you towards, what the answer to that hunger is. And this theme is reiterated throughout the New Testament. You know, I'm a big fan of lists in the Bible, especially when those lists are connecting the dots, because there's a lot of times when I'm struggling with passages and I'm trying to figure out, okay, this, you know, I'm holding it all together in here and in the bit of gray matter between the two ears, and I'm saying, okay, this says this over here, and this says this over here, and then there's this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, and how do I tie them all together? And then I realize, oh, wait a minute. Oh, no, Paul already did that, and he wrote it all down in one single verse for me. Oh, good. You know, <laughs> it's occasionally God surprises me in that way, and, uh, and it's always helpful. And in Romans, Paul uh, has a couple lists, but he makes a simple argument by listing out several questions 
for the intellectual preparation for faith. And again, when you hear intellectual preparation for faith, don't think highfalutin philosophy kind of stuff. All that it means is just the, the mind, the mind being open to God to receive the truth that He has revealed. So this is what Paul says, and he works backwards from belief, from faith, to its source. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom, whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. He, Paul basically says here that you won't call out to a Lord that you've never heard about, and you won't magically hear about Him unless someone proclaims them to you, and that person won't proclaim anything to anybody unless they're given a reason and a mission to do so. And you may have noticed that there is a little bit of a double meaning in the words, the final words of the passage. And it says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing through the word of Christ. The surface meaning here refers to the words which Christ spoke. His teachings, the prayers he encouraged his disciples to utter, and so on. But there is a second interpretation. And one which should not be ignored. Because remember that another name for Jesus found in the New Testament is logos, which is a Greek word. It's a very rich term, and it translates variously. We get our word logic from it, but it can mean reason. It can mean discourse, like a dialogue, or, as it's often translated in the New Testament, word. So when Paul says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, it can indicate the words that Jesus spoke or the Word who is Jesus. In other words, one is given the ears to hear the truth by the open-hearted reception of Jesus into their life. And when you read the passage again with both meanings in mind, you can appreciate that truth is not merely conceptual. This isn't just some system of doctrines that you, and, and practices that you have to get together and make sure that you write them all down and memorize them or else you're going to trip up somehow. It's not merely conceptual. Truth is relational as well. Now, the word that the Eastern Orthodox Christians use for this kind of contemplation, this kind of dwelling with the truth, is a word theoria. And I love this word because from it, we get two words which we probably wouldn't think are mutually interrelated. So we have two English words that come from this Greek word theoria that, uh, at least for me, I found to be a very fascinating connection. Now, you might could have guessed the first one. The first word we get is theory, so, or to theorize. But the second word that we get is theater. Theater. So theory and theater both come from the same word, theoria. And I think in our modern understanding, these two words almost have opposite connotations. We, we might be inclined to see theorizing as some kind of highly abstract exercise and divorced from the world of immediate experience. And theater as a vibrant, creative 
concrete thing. But as the theologian Andrew Luth describes, the word theoria is derived from a verb meaning to look or to see or to gaze at or to behold. For the Greeks, knowing was a kind of seeing, a sort of intellectual seeing, just again, an openness of the mind to be receptive toward the truth, the, the ultimate truth. Contemplation is, then, knowledge, knowledge of reality itself, as opposed to knowing how, the kind of know-how involved in just getting things done. So, in other words, the Greeks had a different word for the kind of knowledge that was about daily affairs. And, you know, if you want to know how to uh, build a, a shed, or if you want to manage your finances, or if you want to, um, you know, tr try and... Um, figure out how to get the kids to school on time, or any other kind of thing like that. That word was techne, and we get the word technique or technical from that. So that word applied to that kind of knowledge. But the real knowledge, the knowledge of the ultimate things, not as how we can use them for our purposes, but how they are in themselves, that word was theoria. And when you're approaching God, you're never approach, if you're approaching Him in the right way, you're never approaching Him by asking, what can God do for me? How does God fit into this little scheme I have put together? No, no. You're approaching God for God's sake, and you're approaching Him as He is in Himself. That's the, that's the mental eye of the mind seeing with theoria. So again, theoria means to behold and gaze at the reality of God with the eye of the mind. And it combines that sense of being a spectator in an unfolding story, like, like a theater, like watching a theater play, along with that intellectual richness and that, that comprehensiveness of theorizing. And it's a wonderful connection, a beautiful, a beautiful blended term. And it's important to remind ourselves here that this process of informing our minds with the Word is decisively not a human effort at thinking about God. It is not merely using our powers of reason to come to conclusions about God. Contemplation is our response to the revelation by God of God, of His presence among us. It is initiated by God, and it's empowered by Him as well. And as another theologian puts it, there is nothing so destitute as a mind philosophizing about God when it is without Him. There is nothing so destitute as a mind philosophizing about God when it is without Him. In the Christian faith, truth is a person, and you cannot be informed in any lasting way about God without entering into a love relationship with Him. So as we take the truth of God, we take it in. We likewise become overwhelmed by a conviction that in God all goodness dwells. And this is really the necessary consequence of realizing that God is, that God exists, because truth and goodness are basically like two sides of the same coin. And this conviction that God is the fullness of truth and the fullness of goodness, if we allow our soul to fully embrace it, it conquers any earthly difficulty. It aligns our hearts, our actions, our behavior patterns to live out the mandate of love. And so I've called this aspect of our Christian walk Reformation. 
or if you want to emphasize it differently, reformation. And another list from Romans, which will help us here, indicates how we ought to process as Christians the inevitable hardships of life. Romans 5 says, We rejoice in our sufferings. You know, if you're reading your Bible looking for uh, a way to, to escape the sufferings in life, you're going to be kind of disappointed because uh, not only is it mentioned a lot, uh, but uh, suffering isn't scooted under the rug or it isn't, we aren't told it's all an illusion or some, something like that. Uh, they confront it pretty much head on. All the, the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, they, they say, Jesus himself said, in this world, you'll have trouble. But then he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so in the pattern of Jesus, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James comes to a very similar formulation when he writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. See, in knowing God, even our hardships are cast in a new light, and they become part of a narrative of healing. Paul writes in the first step of that progression that suffering leads to endurance. Suffering leads to endurance. Why is that? Because when we face difficulties in the proper spirit, we are learning to rely ever more fully on God's provision for our lives and not on what we imagine to be our own strength, and even more so, not appealing to the temporary pleasures of life or the reliefs that this world offers as if they were the answer to our pain. We are able to endure through pain because we're no longer seeking to escape it. In a way, in this life, pain can be seen as a forerunner of death. But since Christ could not be contained by the grave, those who follow Jesus have stopped fearing its power. They've stopped fearing death, and with it, pain as well. We become able to withstand through suffering because we've laid hold of the eternal as our new foundation for life. And by enduring, enduring, the word has duration in it, over time, over time, over time, to endure. By enduring that repetition of continuously laying our suffering at the feet of God, we ingrain in ourselves a fundamentally new kind of character. That's how character is developed, by repetition. One based no longer on the limited priorities of this world, but on the perfect life of Christ, which has been revealed to us. And since that character is based on the everlasting Son of God, it is to us a hope that will never fail, and indeed can never fail. Now, the Orthodox use the word catharsis. So you think we describe some things as being very cathartic to refer to this aspect of the Christian life, this kind of purification of our habits and of our desires, which comes from dying to our old self 
and being made a new person fashioned after Jesus. I recently read again a verse in the Psalms which serves to illustrate this reality. And now like many verses in the Bible, I'd read this verse many times and really more than I can recall. But until recently, I discovered, much to my chagrin my, and my humility, that I uh, was reading it wrong the whole time. And perhaps some of you, perhaps I'm not alone, perhaps some of you have felt the same thing uh, in reading the Word of God. And it's a sobering reminder because the Word of God is alive and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit. God always has something new to say for you in the Scriptures. Never write that off. So this verse that I was reading was Psalm 37.4, and it runs like this. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, when I, I had always read this in the past as saying something along the lines of this. If I love God sincerely, if I love, my, I'm not faking it, if I sincerely love God and I seek after Him, then He will find a way to make my plans for life into a reality. If I wanted a particular kind of house or a particular kind of job or a particular, particular level of income or to be surrounded by a particular kind of friend or whatever else, then so long as I loved God, God would contrive my circumstances and intervene, so intervene in the universe that such that those things that I already wanted would become manifest in my life. But this is not the real meaning of the passage. What the passage is really saying is that if you so order your life that knowing God and drawing near to Him becomes your greatest delight, then He will instill in your heart the desires which will lead to fulfillment in Him. Not that He gives you what you already wanted, but that He gives you a new set of wants. Not that He satisfies your old heart, but that He gives you a new one. See, now just as we mentioned cautiously that for contemplation, that it's not merely the human activity of philosophizing about God, but of responding with the mind to His relational presence. So also we need to clarify here that reforming our character in Jesus is not simply a matter of developing good habits or following a self-help program that's inspired by the words of Jesus. As one of my, my teachers, the, the late Ravi Zacharias, whom some of you know, is a Christian apologist and had a very prolific ministry. He said, and he framed it well, when he said that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Now that's the kind of reformation we're talking about. And that's why you find the language in the New Testament so severe for those who would distort the right practice and the lifestyle which comes from this way of life, this new life, because there's so much more at stake. Jude writes the following words, and he's referring specifically not just to those who disagree about some kind of doctrine or some uh, academic little quibbling. 
He's talking about people who distort the purity of Christian practice into a license for pride and for, for blasphemy and for sensuality. He writes this, They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead, without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. They are wandering stars, for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Sobering words. Never forget in life that you become like that which you admire most. You become like that which you admire most. And I wonder how many destroyed lives began with the lie that you could separate yourself from that idol of your heart, that you could separate yourself from that addiction, that you could separate yourself from that secret sin and not be affected by it, that you could control it only to realize that it ended up controlling you and possessing you and taking you down with it for destruction. You become like that which you admire most. So delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So we've spoken now about information, about receiving and contemplating with the mind the truth of God revealed to us. And we've spoke about reformation, about refining our actions and our patterns of behavior in the fires of trial. But we cannot stop there. For the Christian life is destined not only for perfection in truth and in goodness, but also for perfection in beauty. A beauty which can be spoken of as a special kind of glory. Many of you likely recall that John opens his gospel with these words a few verses in. And the word, there's that word logos, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, what a wonderful description of Jesus that is. And we often talk about following in the footsteps of our Lord, and we include in that things like praying as He did, fasting as He did, following His teachings and copying how He treated others, all wonderful things, all true things, all necessary things. Yet in our encouragement to imitate Christ, we seldom give due attention to the fact that this includes His very glory. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What a tremendous mystery that is. The veil of our sin and our ignorance is taken away, and then to see God face to face and to have that gaze be not one of destruction and of condemnation, but of love and of transformation. 
how amazing and how awesome. But what is it then that we are being transformed into if it is not the very life of God? Now, the Eastern Orthodox speak of this participation in the divine life using the word theosis, which may be defined as the gradual process by which a person is renewed and unified so completely in God, or with God that he becomes by grace what God is by nature. The gradual process, I'll say that again, the gradual process by which a person is renewed and unified so completely with God that he becomes by grace what God is by nature. That might sound like a radical idea to you. It might sound almost on the edge of something, something wrong, but remember, we're, we're referred to in the Scriptures as co-heirs with Christ. Christ speaks of us as his brothers and his sisters. A co-heir is someone who is, has equal share to the inheritance and Christ is speaking about everything He has received from the Father. So everything He has received from the Father, He's made available to us. And this process happens so much so that we become not just Christ-like. And how often have we settled for just being Christ-like? We become the likeness of Christ. There's a world of difference there between the two. Our destiny as Christians isn't merely to receive forgiveness and then copy the example of Jesus with the help of grace. You're off to a good start if you're there. But our destiny is actual participation in the life of God. It would be unspeakable to think of a human person being able to do that if it weren't for the incarnation of Jesus Christ, because in taking on flesh, Jesus showed us that human nature and the nature of God aren't so incompatible that they cannot exist together in a single person. They did in Jesus. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, one person. And if Jesus was the God-man, then by the magnitude of the grace and the mercy of God, we may live out the life of God as a human being. And if you think I'm being hyperbolic, consider the injunction given Jesus, given by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. You must therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do we imagine that Jesus lapsed into exaggeration here? Or is there a deeper mystery that he was hinting at, even at this early stage in his ministry? Jesus did not issue a command to, to do the impossible. He did not give us an impossible command. He is going to make us into the kinds of creatures that can obey that command. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye and at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed it's lewis with his characteristic imaginative flourish reflects on what it means to live out our existence in light of the radical and wonderful possibility of theosis he writes, it is a serious thing, 
to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And again, remember here, Lewis isn't talking about becoming the uncreated one, the, the, tri, the, trini, the Trinitarian God. He's talking about participating fully in everything that God's life has and being a co-heir with Jesus. So he says, to remember then that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or another of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I wish to conclude with a simple and sincere encouragement. After this service comes to an end, we will all head out of those doors in the back and into the rest of our lives. Back to work, back to family, back to friends, back to home, back to lunch. Some of you are very keen on that last one. My heartfelt plea to you today is that wherever you go, take the truths that we've shared today with you. Do not recoil from them. Don't drown them in a sea of distractions. Don't substitute them or for them some lesser doctrine or practice. Life is hard. And in this world, you will have trouble. But fear not, for God has overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. And if you are afraid that you may not have what it takes to see this high calling, this high calling of, of actually participating in the life of God, to see that out to its end, then don't worry, because none of us do. None of us have what it takes. If we were doing this on our own strength, the church would have faded out from the scene a long, long time ago. The following hymn was written by a woman who, by the end of her life, was, was an invalid, and she concluded her final years of life in a tremendous deal of pain. She was crippled uh, and arthritic pain all throughout her body, and she was wheelchair-bound and only able at the very end of the last few years to just barely move her, she could move her neck and head barely and move her hand just a little bit to right. And she wrote this hymn towards the end of her life. And the title is, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting, availing, 
the Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits, his grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. We are all living lives of grace. If you are a Christian, you are especially conscious of that. I mentioned earlier my former teacher, Ravi Zacharias. And Ravi uh, passed away a few months ago from uh, cancer. And I believe he was 74, I believe. And uh, as inoperable cancer in his back, I think. And um, Ravi was a Christian apologist, and he grew up in India to a nominally Christian family. Um, before he died, he remarked on the major events in his journey. And when he was a young man, he, he, his family was well-to-do. His, his father was a, a political office, and his family actually descended from a higher caste in the, the caste system in India, so he had no hardship in that sense, but he felt the emptiness of life. And at the age of 17, he tried to, to end his own life. And it was on a bed of suicide in the hospital that somebody left him a Bible. And it was there, in that hospital room, that he met Jesus. And Jesus took him on, on quite the journey. And as he was remarking in a video in his final days about his life, he said something that, uh, that really resonated with me. He said, you know, I gave myself 17 years. God gave me 57 more. You see, God believes in you more than you believe in yourself. And, and that's the paradox of faith. You know, it's, it, seek first the kingdom and the rest of these things will be added unto you. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I know Ravi's life is bearing fruit still. He's bearing perhaps more fruit now that he's passed than, than his time alive. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, so that we, being in the form of man, might likewise empty ourselves so that we can be filled with the likeness of God. It's information. It's reformation. And it is transformation into the life of the Trinity. A world without end. And no one who truly desires it will be left out. For you will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. Let's pray.
Father God, we come before you mindful of all that still separates us from you. And perhaps our prayer should be the prayer of Thomas. Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And to everyone in this room and to everyone watching online, Lord, I feel compelled to I feel compelled to ask, to put that question out there so we can ask it to ourselves is, what is it that's still keeping me separated from you, God? I know you're there, God, but I don't always feel the strength of your presence. I don't always feel the, the peace and the joy. And, and what's, what's keeping me? What's, what do I need to do to realize that you're there and to realize that you love me and to realize that the great work has already been done? God, I pray for all of us as we go out this week and today that we would never settle, that we would go out into the world with full confidence that you've overcome it and that we're destined for a life in you. We are your body as your word describes us, God, and let us live like it. Let us seek to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Allow us to, you to enter our lives so fully that there's no room for anything else. And then all becomes a matter of loving. Wherever, whenever, and however you will it for us to be. I ask for your blessings on everyone in this church, in our communities, in our nation, and all of humanity, Lord. And I ask all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.